If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn once again to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, this morning we will finish our study of Habakkuk uh, by looking at chapter 3, uh, page 785, I believe, in your pew Bible. We began a couple of weeks ago uh, looking at what's really the main thread of the book, and that's the sovereignty of God. Uh, kind of the center of it is the righteous shall live by faith, which we talked about last week. But we began with the sovereignty of God. This is really what Habakkuk was questioning as he began the book. God, don't you see all the violence and calamity and suffering that's going all on around us? Do you care? Do you, can you even do anything about this? And so he leveled his complaints and his questions and his frustrations against God. Then last week we looked at ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. In the midst of all this calamity and, and suffering, how are the Christians, how are the people of God going to live? Well, the righteous are going to live by faith. And so for us, we see all sorts of turmoil and difficulty in our own lives, but around us in the world, how are we going to live? Well, we must live by faith. And this morning, we're going to see a very different Habakkuk than we were first inter- introduced to in chapter 1. His circumstances haven't changed at all. Judgment's coming from the Babylonians. Ultimate judgment of God is coming, his wrath. But he's a totally different guy. (laughs) He's responding to all this much differently than he did in the beginning. How come? What's happened? Well, he's been given hope. Let me read for us Habakkuk chapter 3, and we'll see this great hope uh, that he gives and that we ought to have. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and from the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses or your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with with your... You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold. There will be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. 
to the choir master with stringed instruments. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a God who gives hope. Lord, we need hope. We need hope in this life and hope for the life to come, and you give us that through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, a book I highly recommend to you, he talks about the global economic crisis of 2008 and 2009, and a lot of the response of uh, CEOs and other people, uh, uh, well-connected uh, people in, in high-powered places and companies around the world. He said it, there was a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals, and he described some of these. The CFO of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hung himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Goods, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head while he was behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. He slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hung himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-per-night luxury suite in London. And when a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose, and then he jumped out of the 29th floor of his office building. These are just some of the stories from that time. You see, these people had lost all hope. Their hope and their identity had been so wrapped up in their things and their wealth and their power and their position that when it was lost, they had no hope. Keller's, Keller goes on to describe in his book the difference between sorrow and despair. He says, sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow loses one thing but has lots of other things to find consolation in. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing the ultimate source of your meaning and hope and identity in life. Have you ever felt this way? You had lost all hope in everything. That You didn't care to go on. You didn't care to live any longer because the thing that you had, had hope in, the thing that you'd loved, the thing that you'd found your identity in, it was gone, and so you didn't want to do anything else anymore. Hope is a powerful thing. I don't care if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. We need hope. We want to hope in something. Now, there's false hope, of course, but we all hope for something or in something. Sports teams capture this. Hope springs eternal, they say. A new season begins. Well, maybe this year's our year. Maybe this year is the year that we win the championship or we beat our rival. You know, maybe this year, if you're a Tennessee football fan, maybe this is the year we beat someone else other than Kentucky and Vanderbilt. Maybe this is the year we're decent again. Who knows? On a more serious note, have you felt this way, this Desire, this yearning to hope in something within you. Something falls away. The, the relationship that you desperately wanted didn't turn out to be the, what, what you had hoped it would be. The money didn't come in as you hoped it would. You hate your job. Nothing is turning out the way that you wish it would. And so you're looking for hope somewhere. Can somebody or something give me hope? You know, politicians pick up on this, and they use it for their advantage. Hope and change is promised. Or believe in my political views, believe in, my, uh, in, in me, I can bring hope, I can restore it back to this nation. Weight loss programs, there's five easy steps to lose 20 pounds. It gives you hope. Maybe 
this can work. Our business says, do these four easy steps and you'll get gobs of money. Joel Osteen, in my opinion, is the master of this. He gives people hope. It's false hope, of course. I'm not praising him for doing something good, but just do these things and believe in God and, and, the, and the dream that you have for your life. It's within your reach. He gives people hope because people are looking for it. Political and social ideologies offer this. Just do this or that. Believe this or that. Utopia is within, in our reach. Just do this and you'll have hope. Well, God offers hope to Habakkuk in our chapter this morning. And that's really what Habakkuk's been looking for. He's looking to be hopeful in something again because for a time he'd lost it all. My prayer is that we are being changed the way clearly Habakkuk has been changed. Going from questioning the sovereignty of God, is he even good? Well, he kind of gets over that hump. Well, now how do I live in the midst of this calamity of life? Well, by faith we ought to live. Well, how do we go forward? We've talked about a lot of different difficult issues as we've looked at Habakkuk. We've talked about Supreme Court rulings. We've talked about shootings in Charleston. We've talked about ISIS and what they're doing in the Middle East. And we've asked questions such as why and how come and what's next. What are we going to do in the midst of it? Judgment's coming to the land of, uh, of Judah. Judgment is coming for us. So what are we going to do in the midst of that? We've asked a lot of questions in the book of Habakkuk. But the bottom line is that there is a coming judgment. How are we going to live in the face of that? Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I know this has been a little bit of a long introduction, but I thought it necessary to do a little bit of a recap of what we've been talking about. How do we have hope? Well, Habakkuk has it. Well, how did he get it? What can we learn from him? Here's my proposition. Because we have hope in Christ alone, we must draw strength from that hope for this life and assurance for, the, for our eternal life, for the life to come. You see, the hopeful Christian looks around the world. He's honest about what he sees. It's bad. It, it, it's, it's depressing. It, it's hard to look at. But the hopeful Christian says, I see all this stuff. But I have hope in God. I trust in Him. My hope isn't here. I never expected this earth to make me hopeful, to comfort me in any way. I have hope in God. So number one, hope draws strength and confidence from the past. We're going to see as we step through this chapter, Habakkuk begins by looking back. He looks to the past first. As I mentioned from the beginning of this chapter, we see a noticeable difference in Habakkuk. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is saying, in, 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 our, in our days, in our years, would you revive your work? Of course he knows that God is working, but he also said, would you make it known? Will you make it clear to me? Would you make it clear to us that you're working and doing something in this world despite the way my perspective, despite what it seems that maybe you're not doing anything? I'm going to remind you this a lot. 
Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed. The Babylonians are still coming. They're still going to destroy Jerusalem. They're still going to take the people of God into exile. That's still going to happen, but Habakkuk is a totally different guy. You see, what began as a plea for God to act right now, to change right now my situation for dramatic intervention, has turned into a confident assertion in God and who he is. Habakkuk makes no further case. Typically, when God would respond to him, he'd come back with another complaint. We don't see any more complaints. Habakkuk, in some ways, seems very satisfied in what God is saying. But every step of the way, what does Habakkuk do when he's frustrated? He comes back again and again and again to God. He prays again and again. He doesn't pull away when he's frustrated and upset. He continues to go back to God for answers and for understanding. Complete submission, if you will, to God and whatever he chooses to do. Habakkuk had once questioned everything, and now he's submitting, which is a place that we must get to. So he says at the end of verse 2, In wrath, remember mercy. God, I know that wrath is coming, and it should. That's the just response to what our nation has been doing, what's going on around the world. But in the midst of the wrath that's coming, would you remember your mercy? Very similar to what Justin read from Numbers chapter 14. And Moses, as he prayed on behalf of the children of God, Habakkuk knows the mighty deeds of God done in the past, and now he starts considering them. In order to have hope in the present, he looks back to what God has done in the past. So if you have a Reformation study Bible, you'll see in the footnotes that much of the imagery that's used in verses 3 through 15 is thinking back on the Exodus, when God took his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt talks about the wilderness wanderings, using this, this imagery here. It's, it's a little, uh, it's kind of odd language. It's a little hard to understand, but that's what he's describing. The gracious giving of the covenant law at Mount Sinai, when Joshua takes over for Moses, when they take over the promised land. The language here is describing these events, and Habakkuk is thinking about them. He's thinking about what has God has done to give him hope in the present day. It's the same for us. How often when you're reading Scripture, look how the Lord has provided. Look how he's been merciful. Look how he's been gracious. That gives me now hope for the current day. Habakkuk realizes this. His prayer, his hope has completely been changed. He's been reinvigorated through this communication with God. What about you? How often do you look back? You look back at your own life and you think about how God has loved you and provided for you in the past. The psalmists do this all the time. They're confronted with a tough situation, and they're always reminding themselves of what God has done in the past. But how often do you do that? You think about hurt and pain that God has brought you through in the past. Now, what makes you think he won't do it this time? It should give you hope that he will. He's brought you through financial hardships. He's brought you through job difficulties and marriage struggles, and he's mended relationships. He's allowed to... You to, uh, he's given you the ability to forgive someone in the past, and now you come to a current situation in the present. But all too often, maybe he'll show up this time, maybe he won't. The past gives you hope for the present, and that's what Habakkuk is doing. Hope doesn't forget. Hope always reminds itself of God's graciousness and mercy and forgiveness of the past. It doesn't neglect looking, about, looking to it. You know, I think of my own story. I was just as lost as anyone else as a high school student. 
although you would never have been able to tell it. I wasn't a bad kid outwardly. I knew the right answers. I was at church every time the doors were open. But I live what I call a Christianity of comparison. I thought to myself, well, I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm not doing what those people over there do, and they call themselves Christians, so I must be doing okay. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't struggle with the sins that those people struggle with, so I must be doing okay. I was finding my hope and acceptance in myself and the sin that I was avoiding. That was wrong. The gospel I believed in was the gospel of Andy Wyatt, that he can do it himself if he just tries a little bit harder and avoids a little bit more sin. But it's not true. I just thought as long as I can just do a little bit better, everything's going to be okay which really was not taking my sin very seriously at all, that it was just as heinous as anyone else's. Instead of pleading like the tax collector pleads to God in Luke chapter 18, have mercy on me, a sinner. My hope was in myself. It was not in my Savior. And I think back to that. I think how merciful God was to me. He didn't have to save me from that, but he did. He didn't have to show me the depths of my sin, but he did, and it was very gracious that he did. How has God been merciful to you in the past? Think about your conversion. Think about all the events that had to come together for that. The friend that you met. The Bible study you got invited to. The thing that the Lord brought you into or took you away from. All the things that came together for his mercy to converge and you to be converted. Do you look back? Do you look back and draw hope from the past of Scripture and the past of your own life? Number two. Hope gives endurance and peace in the present. Okay? We, we look to the past to draw strength and confidence. Now we come to the present and we have peace and endurance. In verses 14 through 16 in this section, Habakkuk sees a time when God will come and bring judgment to pair upon the wicked. It's so certain that Habakkuk uses language as if it's already happened. The tense of the word of the verb there is an action that has, has already happened. So he talks of it in that way. When we want to, want to look back and make sense of our own times, we ought to look back uh, at how, what God has done in the past to make sense of what's going on in our own times. So in this section, as I mentioned, verses 14 through 16, judgment in, in Habakkuk's mind has already been accomplished. We see more of this judicial irony that we talked about last week. The arrows of Babylon are pointed at the Judeans, but God's going to turn them around and point them back at the Babylonians. All this is going to happen to them is going to then be turned around on God's enemies. They look back for strength so that it will strengthen them and give them hope for the present time. But notice what Habakkuk says in verse 16. Despite all this hope, despite this confidence that we see in him, he's still a man and he's still feeble. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the Lord I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It's a little difficult to know exactly what Habakkuk is saying here. Is he trembling at the thought of the Babylonians coming, or is he trembling kind of at this reverent awe of God? Well, I think it's likely that both are in view here. He knows that ultimately God is going to win and to conquer, but he's still afraid of the exile. He's still afraid of the conquering of the Babylonians, as, as you and I would be. He's being honest. He's saying, as we mentioned last week, the man in Mark chapter 9 says, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. 
I have confidence in you and what you can do, but please help me with the unbelief that's always right there cropping up again. The truth of it is still unsettling, but the sovereignty of God gives us hope for right now in all that we see. John Currid, in his commentary on this passage, says this, It's surprising that some believers have such a difficult time with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Most have no problem with the idea that he's creator of the universe or that he's the redeemer who sent his son to die on the cross. Most would argue that he sustains the earth with his hand, but when it's proclaimed that God is on the throne of the universe and nothing happens apart from his sovereign will, it is then that many of his people gnash their teeth and wag their heads. But the truth is that the entire Bible reveals a God who controls all things by his providence, the sovereign Lord and master of all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says Proverbs. The Puritan William Gurnall says, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe that he is at work in all things in this world even right now? If you had to pick one, I'm going to give you two choices, but you can only pick one. What governs your life, fear or faith? You can only pick one. You Don't say, well, sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that, which is probably true of all of us, but what is most indicative of your decision-making? Is it fear or is it faith? When you think about what governs your decisions, your moral choices, is it the fear of man or faith in God? When you think about your eternal salvation, do you take comfort by faith? Or are you fearfully uncertain? When you think about the judgment that's coming, when the Lord returns, are you eager or are you timid? Are you joyfully anticipating that day? Or are you just cautiously optimistic? When you think about the world and all that's going on that we've been talking about, are you afraid of it? Or are you eager to see how the Lord is going to use you and how he's going to use our church? Do you walk by the fear of man and the world? Do you walk by faith in your sovereign and perfect God who is in control of all things? Are you letting the word of his truth comfort you? Or are you just looking around and trembling at everything that you see? You see, hope draws strength from the past and gives endurance and patience and faith in the present. That's what it does. We mentioned a few weeks ago, hope and assurance is not something for just the privileged Christians to have. It should be a part of our ordinary Christian experience, having hope in him and not fearing. We fear God, we desire his love and acceptance, but how do we get a hope like this? So hope looked back, as we said. Hope is in the present as well, but most importantly, hope for the future. We can have joy and assurance when we consider this coming judgment, not fear and trembling. So hope gives joy and assurance for the future. Verses 17 through 19, uh, the, really the crescendo of this book. Everything's been coming towards this final exaltation uh, and proclamation from Habakkuk, this shout of praise. Again, the circumstances haven't changed, but Habakkuk is looking around his world, and he says in verse 17, there's war that's coming. There's invasion that's coming. There's the devastation of natural resources. There's economic ruin. There's the removal of all basic necessities. Now, the Habakkuk of chapter 1 would have complained, and he would have been upset, but he doesn't. This is a changed man. He exclaims in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. Dr. Currid, in talking about this, this verse, says this is really too, too weak of an interpretation. It's really, I will triumph in God. 
You, you can imagine this primal scream almost from, from Habakkuk. I will triumph in God. He's, he's shouting at the top of his lungs. He's excited. It's a defiant yell. It's, I don't care what I see around me. My hope isn't in that. My hope is in God. He's yelling it as loudly as he can. This has been quite a journey for Habakkuk to get to this point. He's gone through turmoil. He's had to get to the place where he's humbled and he sees God at work in all things. He's wrestled with God in prayer. He's wrestled with his own doctrine and theology, just as we do. He's pleaded for answers. He's pleaded for change. He's pleaded for hope. Some of these he's gotten. Some of these he has not. But it's important to be reminded again, the circumstances of his life have not gotten any better. In fact, they had not changed at all. But he's gone from doubting the sovereignty of God and not knowing how to go forward to trusting in the sovereignty of God and going forward in exultation. I will trust in God. He's the God of my salvation. God has become Habakkuk's strength. Hope from the past gave it for the present, which gives joy for the future. R.C. Sproul tells a story in one of his Table Talk magazines that how much he enjoys goes in, going and speaking at conferences, but his the thing he enjoys the most is his book signings that he often does because he gets to talk to people, which he says he enjoys very much doing. He gets to talk to grandmothers. He gets to talk to seminarians. He gets to talk to little children, he says. But he said the one thing that he hasn't quite gotten used to, quite gotten used to is people want him to sign their Bible. <laughs> I bet that is kind of strange. He says that he obliges them. He signs it and writes a little note. But often people will ask him, Dr. Sproul, what's your life verse? If you could put your whole life into one verse, what it is. And he said he uh, found that kind of strange the first few times. It, what, a life verse? Can I really distill my life into one verse? But he said, I had to get on board with it because too many people were asking me to do it. So he said, my life verse is Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He goes on to say, Scripture says the just shall live by faith, which doesn't mean believing something when you're not sure that it's true. It means that the just shall live by trusting in God. And Paul distills the essence of the Christian life when he says, Rejoice in your hope. Since our joy is vested in the future that God promises for his people, our joy as strangers and sojourners in this valley of tears is that God has prepared a place for us, a better world that will be consummated at Christ's return. Paul's use of the word hope isn't the way that we use the term today to refer to things that are uncertain. He and the other biblical authors never use it this way. They talk about hope that is certain, hope that cannot fail, hope that will never disappoint, and hope that will never embarrass. The New Testament calls hope the anchor of the soul. Why? What is it that makes it so certain? The answer is God's sure promises and the demonstration of his faithfulness in the history of Israel and the lives of the apostles and most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This hope that we're talking about is not that maybe this is true. We're really hoping that it is, and, if, and, the, and the more and more fervent our hope is, maybe it'll come true. No, we have a reason for the hope that is in us. It's what Peter says. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. The hope that Christ is coming again. His promises are sure and certain. This Bible is true. Every bit of it's true. The promises is something you can hang your hat on, not something that you can just really, really hope are right and true. It's not wishful thinking. It's based on historical facts that happened. 
Is your hope in God and His Word? And is it a confident hope? He's coming again. All that I see around me will be gone. All the nations that rise up that think there's something will be wiped out. He will set up His kingdom, and we will live forever with Him reigning on high. That's what's true. Do you find your identity in that? Or do you find it in something else that is completely and utterly hopeless? Some of you may know the name Mike Milton. Mike Milton was the president of RTS Seminary in Charlotte when I was there. Uh, he's been a church planter, uh, and when he was the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, he wrote a book, and it was basically his testimony. Uh, he has an incredible testimony. And by incredible, I mean just all the things that happened to him are just, it's amazing, and all the graciousness that God had upon his life. I want to read a very short excerpt from his testimony. He begins, I was supposed to have been aborted, but that's not my identity. I was abandoned, abused, and kidnapped all before I was five years old, but that's not my identity. I hear folks talk about identity in terms of heredity. I'm from English stock, and I'm a Choctaw Indian. I'm both of these, but it's not my identity. I could tell you that I was adopted and orphaned. My father was a drunk, and my mother was insane. That is true of my life, but it's not my identity. I could myself use all of these phrases to describe my life, but it isn't who I am. I was divorced, I lost my kids, I made some terrible choices, are all monikers that some use to describe their essential personhood. I could also utter these confessions to you, but it's not my identity. I was a successful businessman, a golden-haired fast-tracker grooming for the vice presidency of a major corporation. I was that, but that's not who I am. Perhaps some in my position today would even claim I'm the pastor of one of the greatest churches in America. I am a pastor. And I do think the historic First Presbyterian Church of Chattanooga, Tennessee, is a one-of-a-kind church in our nation. But being a minister and being at that particular church is only an extension of my identity. But it's not who I am. My identity is quite simply completed and totally related to Jesus Christ. Some reading this will not like my saying that. They will want more. They'll want depth. They'll want irony. But he is all there is to me. I am as deep as this. I have only him. I have only God. We're going to sing in just a minute. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. First Perez, we've got to get to the point where we can say the same thing. All I have is him. My identity is completely and totally wrapped up in who Jesus is. He is our salvation and our hope. My hope's not in mankind. It's not in the political process. It's not in the government. It's not in money. It's not in fame. It's not in power. You know, far too often we're exactly like the Jews as, as Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem in John chapter 12. They're excited. He's here. Our, our liberator is here. And Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're cheering as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a colt because they think he's come to liberate them from the Romans. They think that he's come to set up this great kingdom, he's going to exalt the Jews, that he'd come to die. Which is exactly what he told them that they had come to do, but they misunderstood it. He hadn't come to usher into the kingdom of the Jewish people being exalted and everything that they wanted to happen. He'd come to die. So the people that were cheering him on that day were going to jeer him when he's hanging on the cross. We have a tendency to do the same. 
We want God to usher in the kingdom of God on our terms. We want to find hope in things of this world and not in him. God is not going to usher in the kingdom of God through the Republican or the Democratic Party. He's not, our hope is not in the political process. I'm not calling it unnecessary or evil, but it's not what our hope is in. Our hope is in Christ. It's not what our identity is in. Our identity is in Christ. Our hope is in a spiritual kingdom and a spiritual ruler. We must tell, tell people that their identity is not in their sexuality. Whatever their sexuality is, that's not their ident- identity. Their identity is in Christ. Just as anyone's identity is not in the sinfulness that they commit, it's not the reason they have hope. Habakkuk mentions this in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That you're going to crush or bruise his heel and he is going to crush your head. It's talking about Christ coming and dying on the cross. God prophesies here about the salvation that's coming. Satan being completely destroyed in that day. And it should prompt us with jubilation the same way Habakkuk cries out, God is my salvation. (laughs) Yahweh is, I triumph in Yahweh. Take heart, first prayers. We are unsettled by the world around us, but the victory's already won. It's over. I bet there are some here today who you need some hope. You haven't found it anywhere else. You've looked for it many places, but you haven't found it. There's hope in Christ. There's hope for eternal life. There's joy and assurance in Him. Are you in Him? Would you like to be? Pray that God would convict you of your sins and would give you repentance and faith. And one day when we stand in the judgment, it's not something you have to fear. It's something that you can joyfully anticipate because you will be clothed in Christ and His record will be yours. Then too, you can shout with great confidence and assurance, God is my salvation. There is nothing that I fear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you that you you give us great hope, that our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We would wholly and totally identify ourselves with him. Would you give us that strength this morning? And thank you for saving us by your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand now for our hymn of response? My hope is built on...